And now, what's the oldest computer you can remember ever seeing? For me, old timer, it was a something like a ZX80 or maybe the programmable Hewlett Packard calculator that my brother brought home one day, plonked it on the desk, didn't know what to do with it. Or the Tandy Shack, the TRS-80. Well, today I've got more computing power stuck on the side of my head. I have 64-bit digital signal processors. <laughs> and guess what? They use fuzzy logic, which is pretty cool because that's where we are now on the Fuzzy Logic Science Show. And we're going to talk about IT. Where are we now? Where are we going? What does it mean to all of us? And joining me in this conversation is Tom Worthington. And Tom is a computer consultant, he's an IT educator, and he's an honorary senior lecturer at the School of Computing at the ANU. Good morning. Good morning, Rod. Now, Tom, what's the first computer you remember ever? The first, well, the oldest computer I've seen is CIRAC, which is in Melbourne and is... 1950s, I think. Um, so that would be the oldest one. The first computer I saw, I can't really remember because when I started using computers, you were never let into the room with the computer in it. You never saw a computer. You just handed your pack of cards to the acolyte in a white coat. And they really did wear white coats. And they took them off and did something. So probably one at the um, Queensland uh, University of Technology. But that, that says a lot, though, doesn't it? Because computers in, in those days were things that sat in the basement with their dedicated air conditioning, a whole cloud of staff wandering around. And the way you interacted with these things was you'd drop a deck of punched cards onto a counter and somebody would take an acolyte, you call them. They're kind of like high priests of the machine. Yes, and um, they would then take them off and sometime later, hopefully you would get back the results or you would get back a bit of paper with lots and lots of error messages printed on it. <laughs> yes, I, I can remember we used to run statistics job at the Bureau of Stats and I would deliver my punched cards. And then when I got the results back, a big fanfold 133 character computer paper. Now, who knows what that is anymore? <laughs> and, and it had the costing on it of the cost of the run. It was $54 to run one little job. What was the first thing that you used a computer for? Well, at high school. Yeah. So our um, maths teacher, um, we had a computer club. And we used um, punch cards that you punched out with a paper clip. Yep. And he would take them to the um, teacher's college where they had a little computer and it would run basic programs and then you would get your printout back at school. And this, this wasn't part of the curriculum. This was just... Oh, so you, you, you developed an interest, a personal interest in this stuff. Was it, was it the thrill of making the machine do something? You just thought, oh, isn't that really cool? Well, it, it was partly because um, I couldn't spell and the idea of having a computer that could help you do things um, and it, it would print them out beautifully and do the calculations correctly. 
was was the appeal. Well, do, do you do you remember one of the first programs, or what's the first program you remember ever writing? Uh, it probably was Hello World, <laughs> where you just get it to echo something, and then one to you know uh, print out one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. So that, I guess that kind of dates both of us. Uh, now, uh, we have changed, computing has changed so much, and it's not that long, is it? What really strikes you about that change now when you look at it? It's, I think it's um, how widespread and ubiquitous computing is that it's, it's now not white people in coats doing these things and experts there are it's it's throughout society and throughout culture and industry um, and it's in lots and lots of gadgets that we use and the strange thing is most of them don't look like computers yes the definition of computer is really really changed well let's have a look around the studio here at uh, two double x and what kind of computing power have we got in here? I mean, at a guess, uh, Tom. Well, there might be more in your... Um, hearing aids. Hearing aids than there are in the personal old personal computer the studio has here. Um, but there's a computer in each of the telephones in the room here. We've got our mobile phones with us, our smartphones. Uh, there, there'd be one in the surveillance camera. On the roof. And the doors uh, are computer controlled, so ubiquitous, I think is the word, and largely invisible almost. Until they break, until it goes wrong. Ah. And then you are in much the situation I was back in high school when my program wasn't working right and it was just printing out unintelligible error messages. And Essentially, nowadays, when one of these gadgets breaks, you end up back in that situation. You will typically get some error code number and have to figure out what's going wrong. I, I love the one where you say an unexpected error has occurred, mm. <laughs> which I think is really crazy because, like, oh, the other error we expected, we knew you were going to do that. <laughs> but the... The advances has been accompanied by an enormous amount of complexity, right? Uh, yes. The um, microchips have so many components in them now. And uh, I have a friend in Sydney who designs microchips. And uh, in a way, they don't now design, they don't wire the individual components. They write software which designs the chips, and there are layers and layers of software and companies to automate all that process because there are so many millions and millions of components on each of the chips in your phone. It's, it's stupendous, and no one person understands all of it, right? Uh, yes. So you have specialists, and you have people who work at different layers in this, and they specialise different sorts of processing and how to assemble them all together and get it to work. And it's... It's a bit of a miracle that any of these things ever actually work. I've sometimes done the mental calculation or the not really a calculation even, but I've thought, well, so here I am right now speaking into a microphone, right? And if I were to follow the number of individual atomic level steps 
of the audio signal coming from my mouth into the microphone and then out into the radio if you're listening to the radio or if you're listening to the podcast or we're streaming over the net, of course. That number is like it defies calculation. It's just absolutely incredible. Well, don't worry. As long as it works, there are many dedicated professional people at work right now making sure it all works. And, and yes, it is amazing that it does work. Now, it, an analogy is in a car engine, right? Remember, you used to lift the bonnet on a car and you could just see, well, there's all these bits. And now what happens when you open it? Do you think that this level of complexity is almost alienating or it, it, it makes it so incomprehensible for most people, even for yourself and, and, and me who are experts in our fields? Do, do you find that it's really challenging well not really because most people wouldn't be able to fix an internal combustion engine anyway um, they rely on a mechanic to do that um, now that it's got microchips in there as well uh, that adds another level of complexity and mystery to it all uh, but you're still relying on someone else i have a car that must be 15 years old so it's got only got a very basic electronic components and the battery went flat the other day and I was comfortable feeling that if I needed to, I could push it down a hill to get it started still. Um, and that's one thing to keep in mind that um, uh, we might joke about, you know, a gadget breaking, but if it's in a car and it goes wrong, it could be very dangerous. Oh, yes. And there's, well, yesterday I dropped my car off to pick up her bicycle and she walked off with the keys uh, because there is no key anymore in a car. They're now these fobs or these these remote devices. In fact, I've heard of someone taking, uh, driving the husband and wife. He got out of the car, the car doors locked and she was stuck inside the car. Uh, and it kind of strikes me as pretty weird when you have to psychoanalyze the electronics in order to manipulate a car now there's just there's so much going on in these things that in the old days he says wistfully well it, it's it's um i work a bit in the um emergency area and um it's always good to have a a backup system so in my car i have an escape hammer in in the dashboard, uh, if, my, if my car was to lock, you pull the hammer out, um, it, you can cut the seatbelt with it, and then you smash the side window uh, to get out of the car. Well, uh, there was always the thing with a computer. When the computer goes haywire and wants to press the big red button, uh, you, you can lean over and flick the power switch off now, but not that simple now. There is no one power switch anymore, is there? Well, because we need these computer systems to be running reliably, yes, there are lots of bits, and it, it can, if things go badly, it can get out of your control, um, the whole system. Um, but... As I say, there are people who keep those things running and who spend a lot of time testing all of that stuff. To make sure that it keeps working. Well, in a, in a moment, we, we're going to delve into what happens when it does break. Uh, my guest today is Tom Worthington, a IT expert, joining me on Fuzzy Logic. 
But one thing I remember from writing my first programs, in fact, even my later programs, sometimes they were so stupendously complicated that even I didn't really understand why they worked. There were, I would change a line of code, it would break, change that line back, and it would work. I could never really get a concept of why it did or did not work. And you get this emerging property of a system when you start putting all the bits together. It behaves in a way you don't expect. Well, maybe we need to send you back to um, computing school and learn about dealing with complexity, um, about how you um, layer what you're doing and break up the system into bits and check the interactions and also have guards so that... Um, so these are the principles of design, making things modular with yeah. defined uh, interactions, interfaces between one part and another, so you kind of break the complexity into manageable chunks. And, and so that if something does something unexpected, it doesn't have a, a bad outcome. And, of course, then you throw into the mix, um, that's bad enough, but then you have human beings interacting with the computer and doing things you never expected them to uh, do. Yes, well, that will tap into the story we're going to go into in a moment. But still, uh, Tom, the a system does get to a level of complexity where you can never really entirely predict the way it's going to behave. And yes, I, I did all of those techniques and testing and good design and so on, make a system as robust but I never saw a system of any real complexity that you really understood what happened at the marginal conditions. Well, they do surprise you. And, of course, when you have multiple people writing the programs, um, it, it then adds another layer of surprise when somebody gets it to do something you didn't realise. Well, wasn't there that, that case was the Ariane space rocket where one team was using metric and the other were using uh, imperial measurements? Oh, no, I think that was a NASA. Um, I uh, think... Was it rather uh, than Ariane? Yeah. Uh, I think the Ariane had a system failure because they programmed part of the system for an old rocket and they put it in a higher-performance rocket. That's right, yes. Which yes. Um, it was had, going faster. It had greater and, boost. And it, it just went, oh, this is all too much, and shut down. It exceeded so the, exceeded the, the American one was they had um, metric and imperial measures, and that I think that was a Mars probe that got lost. Uh, and millions of billions of dollars of very, <laughs> very sophisticated equipment going up in a cloud of dust. Very, very disappointing, yes. Well, uh, here on Fuzzy Logic, we're talking IT. Where are we now? Where are we going with my guest? And with my guest today, Tom Worthington, we're talking IT things, computing things, how the world has changed so much now. How dependent we are. Imagine this scenario, the internet disappears. What would happen if the internet dis disappeared? Well, how would you pay your bills? Uh, what would happen to the water supply? Uh, could you call emergency services, the telephone network? All these things are all now interconnected via the internet. And, Tom, we've recently seen a small couple of examples, well, small in one way, about what happened. Do you want to tell me a little bit about those? 
Well, um, we've had a couple of outages. The most recent one was um, banking systems in Australia, one airline, um, for part of a day. And the previous one, what was was that um, video streaming services? Uh, You mean who was affected by it? Yeah. I'm not sure, but it it affected uh, big businesses in the US. Yeah. And so these are both cases where you have a company that services customers internationally and so when you say customers we're talking not just customer like you and I we're talking big customers right yeah so they could be business customers and so you have intermediary to speed up the internet instead of the commonwealth bank i'm a shareholder by the way um having a computer connect to the internet connect to the customer, you have a, a company in the middle who store some of the information, like it might be the videos they use, their web layout, not your bank details, and they keep copies of that around Australia, around the world, so that when you go to access your bank account, instead of having to go back to the one computer at the Commonwealth Bank all the time, it gets a copy of... So it's so, it's a bit so. like it's a bit like you've got all this huge warehouse of stuff, but going to the warehouse it's a long way and it's quite time consuming. So you keep a little stash, yeah, in your own cupboard. Yeah, so that, you have copies around the place of the information, and the problems we've had recently are the companies providing these services stop working, and so therefore all the customers of those banks, those airlines couldn't access the in, well, their services. Before you before you go on, let me give... I've got a bit more information about the second outage, which is a company called Akamai, mm-hmm. and it affected 500 customers. And when we say customers, we don't just mean any old customers. Three of the four banks in Australia went down, Virgin Airlines, Australia Post, and the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. They were all affected, and was, they were out for roughly two and a half hours. That's that's pretty heavy duty impact, is it not? Well, uh, I don't think anybody would have died as a result of that. So for me, heavy duty impact of a computer failure is mass mass casualties. So okay, this would we're, have cost, so we're talking financial impact then, this and would loss have cost of service, millions of dollars. Yeah, maybe not up into the billions, maybe the stock exchange. So this is um, what is called in the business. Uh, a safety critical problem because it would have exp- large financial impact on people. So yeah, it's a serious outage, and it's something the directors of those companies should be queried on. Uh, are you doing your computer system properly? Um, should you have another system ready when this happens? So well, let, let's talk about why this can occur not not so much at the deep technical level because there's things like routing tables and other weird things going on here but how is it that we can lose a chunk of the internet at all well um, in this case it wasn't the russians it wasn't the chinese hacking (laughs) it wasn't some teenager in his bedroom getting into the system they were simple human errors of the people who run the computer systems Uh, putting in some incorrect numbers in some tables and breaking the computer. 
the problem being because so many people, so many companies are using the, the one computer system. Uh, when it fails, it's a big problem. But is it like one of the principles? Well, let's talk about what makes a resilient system. What do you want to have a go at that first? What what makes a system resilient? Uh, well, my um, ecology lecturer used to should used to say that diversity leads to stability. So it helps if you have um, different systems being used, and you you have fallback systems. So if something goes wrong and you allow for capacity constraints in your systems so that if... Uh, so are we, we're talking about avoiding a single point of failure? Yes. But every time you go, oh, let's have a backup system, you also introduce the potential for it causing problems as well as costing more. Uh, uh, yep. Now, we, we tend to focus on the fact that well, these, uh, there's the physical part of this, right? So there's these, a small number of big companies who are providing these services. Do you want to give us an overview of what that situation is right now in the internet? I'm not sure of the numbers. Akamai is one of the leaders, and the one that the other failure was... Fast, Fast, fastly. Fastly, yes. And they have a large chunk of this market. Um, a lot of companies are also using Microsoft, and uh, Amazon cloud services to provide their computer system. Government agencies are using But is these. it the case that we have a small number of companies providing really core uh, foundation services for the internet? Yes, there's also a limited number of companies and computers providing the domain name service, which is like the telephone directory. When you type in www something, it has to go to a computer, looks up, it figures that, out. It figures out where that is, and yeah. it finds a, a number to go to. And there's only a handful of computers around the world providing that system. Yeah. So we we have a small number, not single point of failure, but a small number of points of failure where it's it's a limited number of companies, a limited number of physical boxes, such as they are these days. And the software and the configuration of the platforms, that all of those things are, are limited, right? So yeah. So you might have um, a dozen or or two companies. You have maybe a half a dozen types of software being used. So they are potential points of failure. The the basic internet was developed um, to be resilient and reliable so it internet means a network of networks yep. and so it's designed so you can have lots of networks connected to other networks and so that if you lose one network it simply routes around it, it figures out a, a way to get yeah. to get through yeah but it's a bit like biological diversity you know you say oh well we've lost this species from this habitat but you don't know what the role of that. And the, the fewer species you have in a habitat, the more at risk it is. So it's a bit like that, right? Yeah, but if you're, it, but all that diversity costs money. And if you're running a company, it's much more convenient to just um, subcontract your service to a large company that does it for a lot. That'll be cheaper, but that's a single point of failure. 
in the system. Ah, so we have a direct tension between cost and efficiency and resilience, right? Yes, and and service to the customer. The customer wants it to work quickly, and you use these intermediary companies to store copies around to make it work quickly. So that um, if you say to the customer, oh, would you rather have it 10 seconds faster or not fail for an hour once a year? They're the sorts of trade-offs you have to make. So do these kind of events that we've been seeing recently, does, how does that affect – how do you feel about that? And does it affect your attitude to our dependence on the internet? Well, because I'm interested – I used to work at the Defence Department. I'm interested in emergency systems. What do you do when everything goes wrong? Um, it does worry me that we need to either have those systems reliable or have alternatives – in a crisis, um, there are particular cases where it's very important. So most of the um, commercial airliners now are flown by computer. So if the computers on the airplane fail, the aircraft will crash. Mm. There is no way for the pilot to fly the and plane. And we're talking about a death in this case, or multiple deaths in that outcome. Hundreds. As opposed to loss of money for a yeah. business. Yeah. There, there's no way for those planes to stay in the air without the computer working at all. The, the control column that the pilot is hanging onto is just connected to the computer. He's just pushing some wires. <laughs> and, but what, what you do in that case is there are normally three computers each of which can control the aircraft, all running simultaneously, yep. and they're all voting. They're saying, I think this, I think that. Two out of three, if they agree, that's what it does. There's a consensus. Do you, do, have you ever seen that footage of a plane in Europe? I, I can't remember which airline, which airline, which plane type it was, but the... The computer thought the nose was too... I can't remember. Oh, I have this back to front. The, the the nose was too low, so it pushed the nose up, and the pilot could see it was too high, so it would push it down. And then there's this tug of war between the plane, and it went, and it went up and down and up and down, and eventually the thing ploughed into the ground. Yes. Um, fortunately, only very occasionally we have these problems. They even have a fourth computer, which is programmed by a different group of people. So in case there's something wrong with the software, they have another computer programmed by a different team that will take over if all the other computers fail. Uh, but every now and then there's a glitch. Um, usually it's not a fault that causes the plane to crash directly. It's usually a interface problem which confuses the pilot, as you say in this case, as to what's happening. And the pilot and the computer disagree on what to do and so that causes problems but fortunately that doesn't happen and the same thing with medical devices uh, pacemakers uh, computers in cars are programmed to a, a much higher standard and tested to make wow. sure it works but I think we need that now that we're using computers to make telephone calls and to do our banking we need to raise the level of um, testing and and sophistication in the programming for that. Yes, yeah, so eliminate the unexpected circumstance, which is what brings you undone here on Fuzzy Logic. We're talking computing, the future computing, how we depend on it, 
and what we can do about it. Let's take a little break here with my, I guess, uh, Tom Worthington, 2XX. That's pretty cool. Uh, that's the Penguin Cafe Orchestra here on Fuzzy Logic, your science on a Sunday. We're talking computing, uh, all things IT, in fact, uh, with my guest Tom Worthington. And Tom is an IT consultant and a professional educator. And uh, so that music, we were just chatting uh, off air while that was playing, and it's from a movie called Malcolm. <laughs> What do you remember about that movie, Malcolm, uh, Tom? Because it's kind of relevant to what we're talking about today. It was a, a, a gadget person's delight um, set in Melbourne about a socially awkward male, which I can relate to, who was into gadgets and built remote-controlled things. And he, he had his car that split into two and so on and so on. And then he gets involved with some criminals, I think. I, I can't remember. Yes, and they, they stage a, um, a hold-up where they use a remote control car with a gun on top of it, which is uh, sadly now a reality um, with military forces having robots with guns on them. Ah, uh, yes, yes, yes. There's there's a whole story there, Tom. We don't have time to talk about that. Military technology, uh, do we outsource the job of killing to a machine? Uh, that just sends a shiver up my spine. Let's, let's go back to resilience because that's what we were discussing before the break. And we've seen a bit of an example of that recently here in Canberra, haven't we? There's been some systems that have been affected do you want to uh, tell me a bit about those? Well, the kind of the fun one is the vouchers um, you can apply for to um, get a discount on entertainment issued by the ACT government. They had quite a bit of difficulty with the system being slow, and then I think it was offline for about a week. It wasn't working at all. Now, in a way, this isn't a big thing because nobody comes to harm as a result of this. It it's just, just embarrassing. Yes, it means the idea was to an incentive for you to go out and, and you know, visit cafes and, and things. And shop locally. But it, it, it did have a real effect on local businesses, I think. That's what I was reading this morning, that some uh, one business, small business, bought a whole bunch of stock on the expectation that there was going to be an increase in sales, and it didn't happen. Yeah, and this is a most difficult case. Um in that this was something um, needed at short notice and it's the, there's no easy solution to this. If you suddenly need a computer system, you don't have a lot of time to do the testing and the implementation. Um, ideally, what you do in that situation is you keep it simple and better still just use someone else's. So I said, well, 
the New South Wales government has one of these systems seems to work. Perhaps you should use theirs. Um, I guess the good news story is the ACT has a very good COVID check-in system using those QR codes, so successful that um, some of the other state governments use the ACT system. What can you say about why the system failed, why the voucher system? Was it a, a flood of demand that they did not expect? It appeared to be a capacity problem, which would likely be because they were doing it in a hurry, so they couldn't make it very efficient. Can I just get you to move on to the microphone a bit more? Then? Okay, that's... Okay, that's a bit better. I was so sounding a bit so echoey there. Here we are talking about the parameters of a system, and mm. you've got to try and predict the environment in which a thing is operating. And if you get that wrong, then you're in all sorts of trouble, right? And But these are situations that you don't normally think that you will need. This We are currently with the COVID um, virus, um, I mean, there is, um, with emergency systems, there are some things you can plan for and predict. So about five years ago, I gave a series of lectures at the university on how to deal using the web with a global pandemic and got the students to work on designing simple websites to provide information to the public. And, of course, the students all went, oh, we'll never need well, a website for a global pandemic, will we? Okay, so in that lecture, what was the main message that you wanted to deliver? Um, get it to work on a mobile phone. Yeah. And keep it simple. Uh, keep it simple technically for the user, both? Both. But the main thing is for the user because in an emergency, um, people suffer from a form of tunnel vision. You're you're worried, you can't take in a lot of information, you're going to grasp on the first thing you see on the screen. And if you can't see anything on the screen that makes sense to you, you'll probably not read any further, you'll just go somewhere else. Okay, so you're, you're talking really human psychology here. Yeah. Because I guess kind of rumbling away in the theme of our conversation so far is you've got all these technical bits you got the whirring and clunking, the wires and the bits and the chips and so on and so on, doing their stuff that clever people design. On the other side of that, you have a human. Yeah, and that's, that's the hard bit. And when I'm teaching computer students at the university, that's the hardest part for a lot of them. They can program the computer, but getting inside of the head of the person using it is something they have a lot of difficulty with especially if they're mostly young males and the customers may not be young males. They, yeah. they, they have trouble thinking about what is it people want out of this and how would they behave when they're using well, the, it. Well, the classic expert mistake is, oh, it's obvious to me. Why don't you understand it? And an example we have at the moment um, that I gave a seminar on uh, a week or so ago is the websites for booking a vaccination for yep. COVID-19. And uh, uh, a few weeks ago, uh, because um, I was in the category, uh, I went to book one and I started at Commonwealth. Well, I started at Google. I went to the Commonwealth website 
and then to the ACT government website, and I could not work out how to book a vaccination. And I thought, I'm a computer expert. You know, I design interfaces and interfaces for emergencies people can actually use for pandemics. Um, if I can't get it to work, how is the average member of the general public going to use this? Yeah, yes, that's that's a tricky one. Now we've talked about why systems fail, and we've really been focusing on the resilience of a system and how it jumps outside the boundaries of what the designers expected. But what about when a person deliberately takes down a system? So now in recent years, we've seen the rise of hacking. We've got the uh, interference in the US elections. We've got uh, sites being attacked. In fact, I run a few websites and I'm constantly seeing uh, all uh, attacks going on on What's your take on on hacking, as we call it now? Well, we shouldn't be surprised because the internet has on it a chunk of humanity and there are people who have bad intentions, there are crazy people, and the people there are people who it's just their living to try and exploit you. And this this happened not long after the internet was invented when there was the first worm put onto the network by someone who was, they didn't have any evil intention. They just wanted to see whether it would work. Because there's that joy of just making it do something that you yeah. want, taking control of something, yeah. the challenge of it. And you remember there's this thing which has disappeared now called freaking, which yes. is uh, spelt P-H-R for freaking. Uh, do you want to give a quick... <laughs> so this this was... Back in the early days of computerized telephone systems, when your touchtone phone would emit different tones when you push the buttons. But the, in fact, that music, that track I was playing a moment ago, that was the telephone. Yeah, they were tones. the tones. Yes. And someone in, I think it's the legend is in California, discovered that there were extra tones which the telephone company used for internal communications if you put those into a phone you could make free phone calls and they would make uh, boxes that would emit these tones and people oh, were the, the selling back, them. the back door yeah and of course there were rumors that if you had a certain sort of whistle you could do it as well and that's back in the days when a an std call remember that an interstate phone call cost you lots of money and an international call cost even even more. So, and originally this was people, hackers, in the positive sense, people who get things to do unexpected things, built these things for the fun of it, but then other people said, oh, we can make money out of that. Um, and then you could have criminals using it to, you know, make phone calls for their purposes. I can remember as a boy hearing somebody describing how he'd had an argument with his wife over on an international telephone conversation. And he said the bill was so big that when he got it, they stuck it in a picture frame and hung it on the wall. <laughs> what would you say the main vulnerabilities are of a system to hacking? It's human nature. So yep. the major problems are not technical computer faults, somebody, you know, sneaking into the system. 
it's people tricking the people who run the system into giving them the password. Yeah, there's that phrase that's, that's on the tip of my tongue, which where you convince the hacker, convince an inside person. So this is this is phishing. Phishing. Also with an F, I think it is, or is it a PH? It's yeah. A PH. A um, PH. And there's different sorts. There's spear phishing and other sorts. So this is, you send an email or some sort of message, and it looks like it's coming from someone you know, someone in the company, and you reply to it, not realizing. So it's you're not, not talking them. who you think you're talking, and it's got a plausible subject line. I can remember going to a talk at uh, Oracle, right? Oracle, one of the world, one of the really big IT database companies, and the guy was their security head of security, and he said, <laughs> "Excuse me." that he had been approached by somebody with an email, whatever, and it looked like it was a legitimate thing, and he said he was about to click on the link, and then he thought, oh, no, something's not quite right. And he really, he said in this talk, I realised that I, here I am, chief of security for a big IT company, and I nearly got caught by this one. And it's because it, it um, the people doing this investigate individuals in and so they know who they know and they use psychological techniques to get you i mean it still may involve a flaw in the system where it doesn't detect this uh, and the thing about it and we had a talk at the australian computer society at the press club a few weeks ago about this that some of the measures to counter this are very simple so for example restricting the geographic area so if you're a computer person in an organisation and you appear to be in a different country to the normal one you normally is, you would restrict their access to do things because if they're in another country, maybe it's not them or maybe they shouldn't be doing things. So you're looking for attributes to kind of push them outside the boundary in some way. Well, and other things, um, multi-factor authentication. So if you want to transfer a lot of money in your bank, they will send you a a text message yep. with a code to check that it's you. And that makes it a lot harder because the person then has to um, get into your phone as well as your internet system. Well, and once someone breaks into your email, you're in all sorts of trouble. So for, for our guest today, Tom Worthington, IT expert, do you have advice for a person who's listening? What's the good behaviours for them to keep them as safe as they can be? Well, on your computer or your smartphone, make sure you keep the software up to date. So you turn on the automatic updates. On your computer, make sure you've got your virus software. Usually that comes free. We're not buying add-ons these days. Uh, so that's main one. If you have multi-factor authentication available as an option, turn it on so that you have to put in a code every now and then from your phone to do things. It's a bit of a nuisance, but it it does make things a lot more secure. Do you think it breaks down trust, the fact that this kind of stuff happens? It does. It means that uh, if I get an email message, uh, I never want to click on any link in the message in case it isn't them. If there's an attachment, yep. I I don't want to open it. And I tell people 
don't send me um, attachments. Don't because. Um, well, how do you exchange an attachment? So I've, I'm doing a lot of work at the moment, and we've got sending files around, image files and, do, and text documents and so on. If you can't attach it through an email, how would you do it? Well, if you're interacting with some people a lot, um, what's good is to use an online service. Um, what do you mean, like Dropbox or similar? Or? Dropbox, uh, or Google Google Drive Docs, and so on, yep. Um, there's specialized ones, Slack, um, computer people use, Microsoft Teams, uh, Microsoft and so on. everything else. Um, so the idea being you put all your stuff in there and then you send the people a message to say um, there's a new document. And the, the good thing about then is when they go to access the system, it checks them, it's them before they get into it. Ah, now I, I am I'm very careful about what I get through email. So I write produce a column for uh, Australian Community Media, and last week I got an email from somebody commenting on one of my columns, which is really interesting. It was about psychopaths. What is a psychopath? And he said in his email, oh, "Thanks for your story," and so on. It was a genuine question, and he'd written a column or a blog story somewhere about. Uh, the same kind of thing and in the body of the email was this link and I'm looking at this link thinking eh, I'm not too sure about that and then I noticed that it had a redirect on it so what happens is you go to the link and then that link sends you to another place so I looked uh, then I copy and pasted that other place which is the, the actual destination he wanted me to go to and online there are URL safety checkers well, the um, a lot of the um, email client software now will do this for you. So I use a free tool called Thunderbird, and it will say to me, ah, this is what it says in the message, but this is the real address that it's sending to you to. Which one would you like to go to? Ah, and there's and a fundamental flaw in email, isn't there, because you can spoof a sender address. There are ways to fix um to verify the sender, but they're technically complicated, and it it makes it means the email might break more often. So, but you don't have to be that sophisticated. Most people aren't going to check the details. But so it's important that you have the the checking software. The other thing is, if you're doing it for an organisation, then do what you're told. So, you know, it's 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 <laughs> it's fun to cut corners and, you know, but if they say you've got to use this software and things like if they issue you a computer for work purposes, don't let the kids play games on it. Yeah. You know, I, I, I sense a bit of frustration from you, Tom. You've seen this go wrong, I gather. Uh, well, um, I could tell you stories about the Defence Department but where I used to work, but I'm not allowed to. No, you better not. <laughs> uh, so... Are we really stuck now with with all the threats, or is it not that bad? I mean, if you, it's like a lot of things that you read about. If you go and do like a health check online, you do a web search for my symptoms, everything's terribly going to die. Is it as bad as that, or do you do you think it's really more under control? 
I think it could get far, far worse. Um, so we, um, at the moment, we're, we're having a global pandemic and we're having to deal with that and we're using the internet to help us deal with it. But at the same time, there isn't anybody conducting a large-scale concerted attack on us. So there's a few criminals. There might be a little bit of state-sponsored hacking going on. But we're not under a really large-scale concerted oh, attack That's at a the really, really interesting point, isn't it? Because we're talking about weaponising the internet now, weaponising these attacks. So the old school day where you send in the tanks and the aeroplanes and the troops, it's, a future wall isn't going to be quite like that, is it? Well, no. The first... Well... No, it, it will be like previous wars. So at the start of World War II, um, misinformation was used. Yep. Um, radio signals purporting to be by one party weren't really. So these are techniques that have been used by countries and non-state terrorist groups. Uh, since the dawn of time, they use misinformation. That's they, mis but if you wanted to damage a country that you were invading, you'd take down their internet, wouldn't you? No, it, no, it, you'd leave it running and you would just flood it with misinformation. Ah, well, there was that case in the... I think it was in the US, so I'm not sure it's confirmed. They damaged the, uh, the centrifuge processing the nuclear material in Iran. Yes, alleged um, to be... Um, Israeli Secret Service and the US. Okay. They now the the computers for the uh, nuclear processing plant in Iran were not connected to the internet, so they had a a, a firewall, a air gap between. So they thought they were safe because you can't get in via the internet. So somehow. Somebody perhaps on a USB drive. I think the story I heard, I'm not sure if this is true, uh, we're running out of time, so I'll keep this mm. short, that it was installed on a printer driver. So someone plugged a printer into the network that was infected. That's one, I guess, and, plausible scenario. And, and that attack was designed to just take out that one installation, but there was errors in the software and other people copied it and it caused problems around the world. So the good news is... A lot of things continue. Our water supply, uh, in many cases, depends on gravity, and it's not dependent on a computer running. And we have people who can manually switch on the pumps, for example. So as long as you've got someone who can physically go in and pull a switch somewhere. We've run out of time, mm -hmm. Tom, but uh, it's kind of on the theme of today's column, which is not about hacking or failures, but is how do you switch off a nuclear reactor? And so I had an expert who I interviewed recently. you find that interview on our podcast site. And he, Tony Irwin is a nuclear energy expert. And I asked him, how do you switch off a reactor? A fascinating story. Another example of system complexity and one you really don't want to break. <laughs> well, thank you very much for your time today, Tom. Uh, a pleasure to talk to you. And thank you. And we'll get you back on air perhaps another time. And you can write a column for us. Ask Fuzzy. Check it out in the Canberra Times and Australian Community Media. That'd be good. All right. Got to go. Catch you later.